So if I uh, had a substitute for tonight's talk, I would get a comedian in here because <laughs> some of your faces are so... <laughs> so it's, it's helpful to bring a little levity in, you know, to really uh, have a sense of... of um, Proportionality, you know that. I mean, how, how bad is what you're going? To, how bad is it? I mean, how bad, how bad could it possibly be? You know? We have people uh, drowning in Pakistan. I mean, how bad is it for you? Really? To get a sense here of proportionality, you know, of, of being able to say, well, you know. I can work with this. Some of you look like you not only can't work with it, but it's dragging you down the road. So just to to lighten this up some, and to to see that this the lighter it becomes, the actually the more wisdom you're inducing into the into the uh, inquiry, because the lighter something becomes, the less personal it becomes, and so you're seeing it in relationship to something much bigger. Uh, instead of, But some of you are making this much bigger into a problem too. Oh, I can't do it. I'm so discouraged. And you know, I need more from you than that. You think that's all you can give to the Dharma is your discouragement? Is that it? You know, that's really where Carrie's talk last night left us off in terms of that doubting quality of us. But she didn't stop there. She went and gave us the possibility of moving out of that. So but I, but I, want, to, um, I want to extend her talk a little more because I do think that doubt is the most ravishing of all discouragements. And when we really don't feel that we're up to the task, when we really don't feel that we that this is something that we can uh, that we can do, then all that's in front of us, we may hear it, it may sound wonderful, but we only give a half-hearted attempt towards the resolution because. We don't, we believe if we gave a full-hearted attempt, if we really showed up for it, it would prove our doubt. Therefore, we'd like to, we'll give a half-hearted attempt. And if we're half-hearted, then we can say, well, the reason it didn't happen is because I was half-hearted. I didn't go full, full circle. Rather than because I can't do it. And so we give ourselves a buffer to save us from our own misery. This is doable, people. This is not only doable, but it is imminently doable. This, what it requires more than anything is you're willing to acknowledge it, that it can be done, that this is possible. And for you to get lost in discouragement, I mean, that's like going back 10 years. That's like junior high school. We have to 
move this thing forward. Tell me how distant, how far from now could you be? Because that's how close you are. Oh, I'm too far away. Well, just look and see how far you are from now. How far you ever have been. How far you could possibly be. And tell me what the problem is. The problem is what we bring to the now that discourages us from the full abiding position we're already in. We believe ourselves into the story that takes us out of the now. We believe ourselves into a separate reality from now. And all it takes is your willingness to see that there is no separate reality from now and you could never possibly create one. There's no such thing. That everything that you have created has occurred now. And so that all aspects of whatever is it occurring is happening simultaneously with your desire to enter it. And the entering and the now are exactly one in the same event. I mean, frame it in a way that you feel that you are very close, not that you're very far. Discouragement says, you know, what's the use? What's the hope? I can't do this. And then you get angry. Often self-anger. All we need to sense is the possibility. All we need to do is just And this will become very obvious to us. And what keeps us from the now is all the language and all the story we present between ourselves and now. It's just the story of our life. All of our trials and tribulations and our highlights and all of that. The belief in that, the story of that is what seems to be so distant, to make me so distant in time from the reality of now. And so all I have to really do is see that the story is a betrayal of the fact. That the story I tell myself is a distortion of truth. So I stop believing in the story and in that Willingness no longer to insert the energy into the story. There's nothing separating us from now any longer. This is not a journey that you have to evolve into something before you are reach the prominence and glory of being able to enter into the kingdom of God, whatever that means. It's simply giving up the story that keeps you separate. That's all. There's no transformation necessary. There's just quietude. 
It's just quietude. But at the same time that it's as close in proximity, we're afraid of it. Exactly the same proportionality that we want it, even more so, is that we're afraid of it. We're afraid of what it means. What does it mean? We hear words like selflessness and emptiness. That doesn't sound very inviting, does it? We create the very entrapment that keeps us from it. And then we feel so discouraged because we're so, we believe so strongly in the story we tell ourselves that we don't think we have the capability of being quiet and actually seeing what is there at the other end of that quietude. All it takes is being quiet. So how can we be doubting our ability to be quiet? We can be quiet. We can learn how to look at what we're saying to ourselves critically enough so that it no longer separates us. We can do that. But judging by the expression on your faces, I don't know. So I want to, what I, the frame I want to talk about tonight is going from, we go, this is another continuum, we go from mistrusting reality and trusting ourselves to mistrusting ourselves and trusting reality. That's the spiritual journey. So it's a flip. Right now, most of us, if we trust anything, the only thing we can trust is that I'm here and my perception of being here and that I am separate from, I mean, all our conclusions from our perception and that anything that I have at my disposal must be from my own effort, my own will, my own force, my own volition. And we rise to the occasion to offer as much energy as we can to overcome ourselves so that somehow we will become whatever it is that we envision the spiritual path leading. And the end of the spiritual path is the reverse of that, that you no longer believe in yourself. <laughs> Not that you don't longer believe in yourself in some disparaging way or, or a doubtful way, but you no longer believe in the sense of self. You no longer believe in it. And where does that belief go? Because all of us have faith in something. Right now we have faith in ourselves. We don't have faith in reality. Where that energy goes when you no longer have faith in yourself is you have faith in reality. That's where it goes. It's, there's a conservation of energy in this thing, just as there is in the laws of thermodynamics. That if we invest in one, we have no energy for the other. If you invest in yourself, in making yourself real, 
You have no interest, let alone energy, to invest in making reality real. When we lose interest in ourselves as being the predominant force of the universe, that energy then goes to the reality, is invested back into the reality, and reality becomes a predominant force of the universe. That's the equation of how this thing works. And so you can look at where you are in your spiritual journey as to how much you're investing in yourself, how much you're taking yourself to be so seriously. Taking yourself seriously. Because that energy, that seriousness, is what you're not allowing to infuse into reality. And so your reality remains a vague kind of thing. Some, a scar tissue of your thought. Distant and kind of remote. It doesn't help you because it's too far away. It's, if it, it's barely approachable. It's not trustworthy because trusting what? And so our energies go in trusting ourself. And so what do we trust within ourself? What is the core of ourself that we trust? We trust our thoughts. Because that is ourself. And so the energy of ourselves goes into the trusting of our thinking. But let's look and see whether thoughts have the right to hold that much investment. I think it's a legitimate question. And to me, it's one that would end this charade, this illusion that we have have if it's true. And if it's not, then I can get on with my business and invest myself fully into my thinking. But I want to know. I keep hearing about it. I want to know. And so at some point the energy arises to really find out. Now you've been listening to your thoughts here. You've been listening to your thoughts your whole life. Hopefully you've been a little more in proximity to them lately. What are they? Well, let's get on. I mean, what are they? (laughs) They don't last but a millisecond. They seem to contain so much information. You know, they're like uh, stuff it finder, stuff it. Expander, <laughs> one of those stuff it things. <laughs> it's got all condensed material in there, and they're full of. But when you look at them, there's just there's nothing to them. In fact, you can't even tell me what a thought is. I've looked at them for decades now. I can't tell you what a thought is. I don't even know what it is. Just words of the mind. So what does a word do? Where does it, if it holds that much credibility with us, if it's our idol, we should know what it does, how it works. I mean, I want to know how it works, so I know whether to invest energy in it. Is it a deflated tire, or does it, is it really a, provide some traction here? Does it give me a, a road into reality? So let's just, 
Look at a word. What's a word? It's an opinion. All words are opinions, aren't they? They're a supposition. They're a, they're a an idea invested in an object. So what we tell ourselves about the object then becomes the object. But is that object really just that word? Is that its full characteristic? Is that its full expanse? Is that its full its full glory? Well, even if we're just beginning meditators, you get a sense that there's more to the story than what I call something. There's more to you than Tom or Michael or Sharon. And the word holds a kind of image of memory. But that's just what I've known the word to be, what I've known the object to be through the word. That's just the story that has come from the word. That doesn't give me any more detail as to what the thing is really, any more than your image gives you detail as to what you are really. I mean, you can tell me all about yourself, but it'll be descriptive. It won't be in essence. And you can tell me all about whatever word or thing that you want to tell me about. But it won't be its essence, it'll just be a description. What's something in essence? I mean, if we want to know what something is, we want to know something beyond just a description of it, don't we? I mean, I would think I would. And what something is in essence, my God, it'd be, it's, I don't know. I don't know what this is. In essence, I don't know what a single thing is. Not in essence. Well, that's confusing. But is it going to be so confusing that it's going to send me backward to the word? You see, am I able to hold the confusion of not knowing what anything is? Now, I've done a lot of work now. Am I going to go back to the word as my rightful place in things, as the rightful depiction of reality? Well, I've just seen through that. I've just seen it as a description. What is it in essence? And I don't know. I can't, like I can't, even if I start magnifying it, it still doesn't give me anything. It just keeps giving me vast space, vast wonder. I just keep going wherever, however I want to look at it. It doesn't give me a essence to it. Yes, that's a little bit awkward not knowing really what anything is. It's pretty strange. No doubt about it. But it's isn't it closer to the truth? Isn't it? Isn't it closer to the truth? Well, if it's closer to the truth, I then I'm going there. Instead of pretending. Instead of saying, okay, apple. <laughs> I want to get closer to the truth. I would think that this is the way science would go. Wouldn't you? You know, in quantum mechanics, I was reading this book called Quantum Enigma. So the scientists are seeing that a photon 
can be in two places at the same time until it's observed. And then it's in one place. So it's a wave pattern of probability until it's observed and it becomes one thing. And you think the scientists are interested in the conscious effect on something that makes two things one? No. (laughs) Not true. They're interested in the mathematics that can predict the results. So this is what this quantum enigma says. It says all the scientists, they're not interested in that. They're not interested in the implication of that. Now, how can you not be interested in the implication of that? I mean, where's your, where are you if you're, you know, it's just, if, you know, like this is wake up time here. Knock, knock, right? Come on. I'm, okay. The fact that nothing is what it is until it's observed means that consciousness plays a role in the creation of an ongoing creation of the world. And it said in this book, written by two physicists, that there's no reason that it's that this enigma is only a definition of the small and the and the tiny and the uh, subatomic. It's equally relevant. They just don't have a way of testing it to all sizes to the shape of the universe itself. So, what does that do with us? I'm interested in that. I'm interested in that because it feels like it's very important to my life. That if I'm creating something out of nothing, that I have a sense of that. That I can move into that. That I can can experience that. And sure enough, although I don't or may not experience two things or a wave pattern becoming one thing, when I, at certain periods of time in my meditation, when I'm quiet enough, when I'm settled enough, I can start feeling things breaking apart, disappearing inside of me, rising, vanishing, the quantum mechanics of it. And so I get a sense that this is much more available than having to microscopically tune in. That it's available right here. And I can also see very easily that objects are formed from my naming them. And then I look around and I see I can't stop naming. That everywhere I look, I've named already. Look around. Everywhere the mind delights, it knows what it sees. I think, wow, this is out of control. I'm making something out of nothing all the time. 
Because when I really look at it and I see that the name is making it into something, I can also see at the same moment that without the name, it's nothing. And now the mystery gets deeper and richer. And this is very, this is just, this is available. This is not secret teachings. This is available to us with curiosity. But for most of us, we want a safe path. We want something, just as Carrie so nicely put it last night. We want the certainty of the naming. We want the stability of self, which the naming gives. So the stability of self, and then we, but we want it, we're feeling the proximity of, of the spiritual mystery, but we're not willing to give up the naming to get there. And so the way we approach it is we approach it from a kind of scientific methodology, something that's reproducible, that's predictable. So give me a technique that is assured of success, reproducible, and then I will march this reproducible certainty to uncertainty. Wait a second. Wait a second here. Spiritual logic, not intelligent. You don't have to be intelligent for this. We're not talking about PhD stuff. We're talking about blue collar spirituality here. (laughs) (laughs) This is, you know, grease. You know, auto mechanic stuff. Hmm. But I don't care. I'm not. I'm too afraid of the possibility of not having. I'm too afraid of the self-doubt that will arise if I don't have the give my authority to the certainty of a technique. So I give my authority to the certainty of a technique. I want the science of it. I want it down. I want to know historically that it's happened to other people, and I want to know that this is will happen to me. So we do stuff like follow the breath, which you can graph number of breaths over time, the graph will rise. Right? Just put in your time following the breath and sooner or later you'll have a positive slope to that graph. You'll see more breaths in the same amount of time than you used to two or three years ago. (laughs) That's reproducible, isn't it? By God, I'm getting somewhere. So we come into it demanding the results. Demanding factual, discernible, reproducible results. And then we tie this perhaps to a whole mechanism, to a whole ideology. Four noble truths, something. And I went to Burma under that, that need. And the Mahasi method, which I was right there in the Mahasi Yekta, the monastery, 
as a monk ordained, and he made it, it's a scientific method. Dot, 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 dot. He he would not only tell you what would happen, the sequences of what would happen. Absolutely assured. So, off I went into it. Had the desired result. Truthfully, felt no different. But I wanted to, so I could talk myself into feeling different. I could talk myself into the arrogance of feeling different. Yep. Went through it, did it. Yep. Wow, Rodney. Yeah. (laughs) It was hard, but... You could do it too. (laughs) The science of it. The science of it. Mapped terrain. All known, right? Now, does this sound familiar to what we see when we look around? Does it sound familiar to a world of spirituality that is created out of the world of thought? Where everything is depicted and known? Everything is recognizable? Directions are assured? Hmm? Where I can graph my way to victory? The problem with a scientific mechanism, mechanical methodology, is it does have tangible results. No question. But they aren't heartfelt. There's no warmth of heart. It's exactly what you would expect from a mechanical methodology. Dryness of spirit. Dryness of heart. No proximity to life. And there, I I don't know, there's nothing special about me, but I knew this was false. I knew this was not working. I knew there was more to it than this. I just knew that. Intuitively, in my soul, spirit, heart. I knew that. So I left Burma quickly when I felt the, I just felt oppressed there. And I said, okay, that's it. Nobody else is telling me a thing. I'm not following anybody's rules. I'm not going to follow anybody's methodology. I'm going someplace where there's just open terrain. And I landed in Thailand with Ajahn Buddha Dasa, and that's what it was. He could care less whether you were practicing or not. He was a very wise man. Wiser when I, wiser now than I gave him credit for then. He just, he just laid out the land. And he made it hard to be there. 
He didn't make it pretty. The food was awful. You weren't there for any reason but for the right reason. Or you'd be, you wouldn't be there. Sometimes on alms round we would get white rice, leaves from a tree that God knows what the tree was. And I was told they were edible. And then a big glob of buffalo fat. And maybe a duck egg. A duck egg. They're not, they're not like chicken eggs. <laughs> and you'd sit there and you'd look in your bowl and you'd go, oh my God. I'm not talking about buffalo meat. I'm talking about buffalo fat. <laughs> but, and so saying, there was nowhere else, nowhere else I wanted to be. There was nowhere else I wanted to be. And sometimes the meals, you know, they would have a ceremony and all the townspeople would come and you would have squid and all kinds of things. But mostly, day to day, you had very, very, very simple food. And so if your heart wasn't there for the right reasons, you'd head up to Bangkok where the food was much better. <laughs> so you just, you just, I, he just laid it out. Okay, so this is, the ter- this is the terrain. This is the territory. No, pr- There's no direction here. There's no pointing. You're on your own resources. Use me. Use me. And I'll dialogue with you, which I did. But for the most part, you're on your own. And I didn't want any help at that point. I was sick and tired of following somebody else's methods. I was sick and tired of... Because I realized that the methods were only to cover my self-doubt. All the methods did was give my authority to something else because I didn't feel like I had enough of what I needed in myself. So the method was my alleviation of my pain. You see? And so uh, suddenly I realized that the Buddha had something to say about pain and the end of suffering. And what I was trying to do is escape my pain to end suffering. So the blue collar of me, the mechanic, said, wait a minute, that doesn't work. It doesn't work. See, it's just, the, just like bare logic. We're not talking about, you know, rocket science here. We're just talking about, oh yeah, A doesn't go to B. Therefore, I'm not walking in the right direction. And then, I took apart my entire practice and laid it out in front of me. I mean everything. I wanted to know why I, I remember this. I, the, I said, okay, I'm starting all over. Why can't I be judgmental in my awareness? Why is it have, all I ever heard was non-judgmental. Why can't I be judgmental? I'm not going to follow anybody. I'm not, unless I see that I can't, I'm going to, I like judging. <laughs> <laughs> and then you look. And then you see what it does. And you see where it's coming from. And you say, okay, I see. I understand now. I understand. I understand. And once you open the door to that open inquiry that Carrie talked about last night, suddenly you're moving everything within that open inquiry. You're every, doubt, come on, bring it on. 
It's like there's nothing out of reach now. Nothing. And I remember then I went up to uh, some uh, to an island, Copenhagen, up in uh, off of Sunmok, and there was a cave up there, and uh, I stayed in the cave for a few months, and I just and you, the cave overlooks the shore of the island, and I ju- and it was just magical to me. That was a magical time because everywhere my mind turned, I would enlighten with with insight. Everywhere it turned, everywhere, because I just opened the door to it. It was as if I had a conduit now to the realization of truth. Just... And I started writing. I couldn't write fast enough. All of it. All of it. Wherever I turned. I never, ever went back. I thought these writings were so good that, I, that like people would just like bow to them. Right? <laughs> I did. I thought this is the greatest stuff ever written. Because that's the way you feel when you have an insight. <laughs> and I ne- never have I turned back and even read what I wrote. <laughs> In fact, I don't even have much, most of that stuff. I threw it away long ago. What insight only comes to you then. It doesn't come to you now. You have to record it all. Make sure that you have it for posterity. No, it comes all the time. You see, You turn your mind if you want to know, if you're cleaned out, if you don't have, if you're not bringing a lot of discouragement, if you're bringing genuine interest and curiosity to our life, insight will open if there is sufficient stability of mind so that you can see where you're looking. And just lit up. Lit up like fireflies. And so then the mechanics that were so important early on, the assurance of the mechanics, the assurance of the, of the authority of the, of the tradition turned into the art the science turned into the art. And the art had no science to it. It wasn't predictable, no guarantees. But everything, there, it was living a question, living a question, not being afraid of not knowing the answer. The answer was less important than living the question. And then it became an art. Everything was an art. It became an art form. And what happened as soon as it became an art form is that the heart lit up. The mechanics never allowed that to happen. There was no kindness in me during the mechanics. It was just raw sewage. But as soon as the heart... It was the heart. It was when I stepped out of the discouragement and the contraction around doubt. When I could enter life because of its being curious, because I was curious about it, because it was interesting to me. That interest is the heart. It's not that it accesses the heart. That 
is the heart. The questioning is the heart. And then kindness was spontaneous. It wasn't there, it was never contrived. And faith was no longer in the person. That's the mechanical approach to life. It was in the reality. It was in all things. And suddenly, I lost my self-importance. It wasn't about me. Life was never about me. It didn't center around me, although I often thought it did. It seemed like I was the center of everything. You ever notice that about yourself? (laughs) You can't get away from being the center. It all comes in like that. And the heart recognizes, the art, the heart recognizes the universality of it. The wonder of it, the mystery of it. And so this continuum we go from mistrusting reality and trusting ourselves becomes trusting reality and mistrusting ourselves. Not mistrusting in the sense of being doubtful, but that this thing is not knowable. The mistrust is that it was and ever could be knowable. It is unknowable. Today in one of the groups, someone felt discouraged. And we just had a quiet moment. And in that quiet moment, it was so obvious to everyone there that the simplicity of just the quiet was enough to access the art of the practice. Just the quietness of it. Very simple, very simple. And within that quiet, I don't know what I am. I thought I did, but as soon as I'm quiet, I don't know what I am. I don't know any more than we really know what anything is in essence. We don't know what a single thing is in essence. Why do we pretend that we do? Let's start here and see what this is in essence. We have to be very quiet. We can't bring a lot of words into this thing a lot of descriptive memory. We can't, that, that doesn't work well under this disguise, the, the disguise of the past. What is it now? What is it now? Not what tortures have I been under in my past? What awful things have happened to me? Where is that past? What is it now? What are we now? And to find that out, We cannot enter the now with words that keep us from the now. 
the willingness to enter the now with that question provides all the answers we'll ever need. And that's the great turnaround from science to art. Thank you all. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.